Hey, hey, what's good, everybody? Welcome back to another edition of the Cooking Up Sports with Gage Bowl show. Let me get my audio right here. I hope it starts to clear out in a little bit. There is so much to talk about. I mean, we. I want to first start off talking about, I mean, Alex Cora and A.J. Hinch, uh, Jeff Luno. Uh, we're also going to talk about the Utah Jazz today. Recently, we just won 10 straight. And today, they will play the New Orleans Pelicans. Hopefully, going to make that 11 straight games. We're going to talk about how two trades help the Tennessee Titans advance to the AFC Championship. How about these Titans, man? How about these Titans? Uh, But one of the first things we can talk about is actually the Dallas Cowboys. They hire Mike McCarthy. Insane, right? I mean, I have, I have, I've, I have had no time to talk about this on Instagram, anything. So this is my first statement on this. Mike McCarthy was a good addition for Jerry Jones. But the real question is, is this still going to be Jerry Jones's team? Is this where Jerry Jones is Jerry Jones still going to be the one making, making the calls, every call. Um, We saw Jason Garrett really not make a whole lot of calls. I know we bash Jerry Jones for possibly being the play caller of the Dallas Cowboys this past season. When you have a head coach and Jason Garrett, who, who had been a very big disappointment, mind you, but we really can't point the finger at Jerry and say, okay, yeah, you know, here's an instance where you've been play calling. And, oh, my gosh, look, Jerry Jones is playing calling right here. No. I, you know, we don't have any evidence of that. We can only speculate about that. Speculation, uh, I think, is probably correct when it comes to the – to the uh, excuse me. When it comes to the situation of Jerry Jones, I think the speculations are correct probably. I'm not going to lie. But Mike McCarthy is a good addition. I, you know, I really do think that there was a click between him and Mike McCarthy and Jerry Jones because Jerry Jones wants a winner. The Dallas Cowboys arguably have the best roster in the NFL on paper. I'm not saying on the field, but on paper, you have a one in a million running back in Ezekiel Elliott. Dak Prescott is, you know, he's going to be your franchise quarterback, I believe. Amari Cooper, he's no joke. Jason Witten actually played pretty well this year. I mean, you have Van Der Esch on the defense. I mean, what you have the talent at your disposal to win if you're the Dallas Cowboys. You really do. You The talent is there for you. But in football, it's it's a coaching game. You can have all the talent you 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 want. I mean, look at the Cleveland Browns. They have Jar they had Jarvis Landry, Odell Beckham Jr., Baker Mayfield, Nick Chubb, arguably one of the best rosters in the NFL as well on paper, but guess what? No playoffs this season for either team and the Cowboys and the Browns, two of the best teams on paper. It comes down to coaching. Freddie Kitchens was not a good coach. But we're focusing on the Cowboys. Jason Garrett was an absolute embarrassment for this team. How did I mean uh, I don't know. I really don't know. I believe Mike McCarthy can take the Dallas Cowboys back to the playoffs. You all know I'm not a Cowboys fan. I hate I hate the Cowboys. I hate their fan base. I hate everything about the Dallas Cowboys, but I think the Mike McCarthy move was was very smart. Uh, I wish there would have been an Urban Meyer there. I wish Urban Meyer had been offered the job and gotten an interview and Jerry Jones hired Urban Meyer because I believe Urban Meyer has the right mentality there because look at what Mike McCarthy did with Aaron Rodgers. Only won one Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers. Not good enough. And Mike McCarthy also had the talent at his hands, did nothing with it. 
So this is going to be very interesting to see what Mike McCarthy can do. Is he going to be a winner? Is he the guy before they hire Jason Witten as their next coach? Because I mean, maybe you know, maybe they're grooming Jason Witten as as we're talking. My speculation is they are grooming Jason Witten. But you know, what do I know? What do I know? That's my thoughts. Very smart move to sign Mike McCarthy. This may be the guy, though. This might be pre-Jason Witten era for the Dallas Cowboys. I wish they had hired Urban Meyer. Said that before, but still, not a bad move. Next, let's talk about what recently went on. Um, the 2020 MLB sign stealing investigation of the Boston Red Sox and the Houston Astros. Houston Astros did recently receive their punishment. AJ Hinch and Jeff Luno are suspended for one year. Jim Crane, Houston Astros owner, fired both. For you know, pretty much immediately after the punishments came out. Very smart move on Jim Crane's idea. Alex Gore and the Boston Red Sox, both sides have mutually agreed to part ways. There have been no punishments yet on the Boston Red Sox and Alex Cora. Alex Cora could possibly be banned for life. And we don't know what punishments will come to the team in the Red Sox. Maybe they have an asterisk put by their World Series like the Houston Astros. But, who? I mean, what do we know right now? We we can just speculate about that about that topic as well. But here's the thing. Uh, cheating is never correct in the sport of baseball. You know, I believe every team cheats. Um, it's just, it, you know, it's just the nature of the game. Cheating, you know, whether that be uh, you see a pitcher tipping off his pitches or, you know, you do what the Astros did and put a center field camera in. Center field camera is, is an extreme form of cheating and using the video replay room is a extreme form of cheating. But, you know, watching a pitcher tip his pitches, I mean, that's on the lower end or, you know, what you know what I mean? But here's the thing. I agree with the decision to punish the Houston Astros the one year. I I like that. Um, I actually wish it had been two years, but I mean that I you know that's just me personally speaking. But I like how Jim Crane immediately fired them. That is right on his part, and how he said that we can't have this in an organization like this because you know we thought of the Houston Astros as a very classy organization, one of those organizations that was dedicated to winning, bringing this hit the city of Houston very, very much hope. I mean, they, you know what I mean? This is, this is rough. This is rough. I mean, who you're, you're GM less, you're manager less uh, for the Houston Astros, Boston Red Sox right now. You're also manager less, but here's the thing. These players uh, with these World Series rings on, I mean, they're not going to take them back. But here's the thing. When you look at that ring, do you feel any kind of remorse? Do you feel like crap? Now, I know we won the World Series, but we did this in the wrong way. We never did this in the correct way. I mean, we cheated our way all the way there. We cheated out teams like the New York Yankees and the Los Angeles Dodgers. We cheated those teams out. What do you, I mean, really, what can you do? I, f- I would feel remorse. Some of those players, I guarantee, aren't feeling anything. They're like, I won. I, I completed a career goal of mine. It doesn't matter. And that sucks. When you cheat out great teams like the Yankees, who had amazing talent, and Aaron Judge, Didi Gregorius was hitting very well that year. Pitching YCC Sabathia was doing very well. This is an embarrassment. 
for the Red Sox is an embarrassment. We've always considered the Red Sox a very classic organization and a very and a class A organization. This is, I mean, this is insane. For Jeff Luno, I had the utmost respect for Jeff Luno. 32-year MLB career. This is the first instance we have heard of, of Jeff Luno caught in a cheating scandal. Ruins my respect for him. Ruins my respect as A.J. Hinch. I mean, we don't know how good of a manager he is without cheating. I would like to think that he's a good one, but we never know. Alex Cora, I view him, I view him very differently as he was the one instituting these cheating scandals. He was the one saying, you know, this is how we're going to win. That. Wow. Wow. I mean, Cora said he doesn't want to be a distraction of the Red Sox anymore as they move forward. Guess what, dude? You're an embarrassment. You're not a distraction. You're an embarrassment to that organization. I the, I can't really say much about it, but here, you know I hope the life lesson you get out of this is cheating is not okay in anything, whether that be relationships, education, jobs. Cheating is never, ever, ever, ever okay because it leads it. You know it can reward you with things you don't deserve. It can get you places you don't deserve to be. It can get you things you don't deserve. It's a darn shame. It's a darn, darn shame. Next, hey, let's talk about these Tennessee Titans, baby. (coughs) Good grief. I want to talk about two trades that really helped catapult these Tennessee Titans to the AFC title game. We got to hit the rewind button on the VCR, though. We're heading back to 2016, a year of wild and party. This is the year, though, 2016 was the year they hired Joe Robinson. Not Joe Robinson. What the heck am I saying? John Robinson. They hired him as their general manager. And what he did was John Robinson was handed an awful roster. 2016, remember, the Titans went 3-13 that year. So what did John Robinson decide to do? John Robinson had to do what any general manager had to do, and that's that's facing a rebuild. And not just a rebuild, a total rebuild. You had, But what he had to do was he had to use the draft's first overall pick at his disposal. He just had to decide how he was going to use it, though. How do you, you know, how, how was, you had to be very smart about this because this is where you are either crucified or you are a hero. So what did the Titans do? They give up. They gave up the number one overall pick in the 2016 draft, and that was they gave it up to the Rams. Remember, Jared Goff was the first round pick that year, along with their fourth round pick. They decided to trade that to the Bears, and the Bears took Nick Kwiatkowski, one of my all time favorite Bears right now. We'll talk about that another day. And then they gave up the sixth round pick. All right, and that was used on tight end um, Tamara Hemingway. So what do the Titans receive, though? I mean, they, they trade all these things away. So the Titans receive the, the Rams' 2016 first-round pick, and that was the number 15 selection. So what do they do after that? They're at number 15, so they trade up to get to the number 8 spot, and that's when they draft Jack Conklin. Then they get to 2016 second-round selections. That's when they had number uh, 43 and 45 picks. So they decided to use it on... Austin Johnson, and Derrick Henry. 
Then they have the 2016 third round pick. They decided to use that and the Conklin trade. Then you have the 2017 first and third round picks. So that year, uh, first round, they had the number five pick, and the third round was the 100th pick. They used that on Corey Davis and Johnny Smith. What did this mean, though? So what, you know, you're, you're sitting there at home. You're sitting there in your car right now. You're thinking, what the crap is he talking about? How did these trades mean anything? What did that even mean to the Titans playoffs? Playoff run so far. Okay, here's the thing. Robinson, John Robinson got four 2019 starters in the hall. He got him from the Rams, who helped form the core of the NFL's hottest running game, to be honest. I mean, Henry's year so far has been nothing short than historic. I mean, he's become the first player to gain more than 180 rushing yards in three consecutive games. He was this year's uh, NFL's regular season rushing leader as well. I mean, that doesn't mean anything, right? No, it does. And he's carried these teams in the playoffs so far. I mean, in the Patriots game, the wild card game, finished with 182 rushing yards. Then you play the Baltimore Ravens the next round in the divisional round. Guess how many yards he has then? He has 195 yards. Derrick Henry so far has had 406 scrimmage yards so far. Okay. This has accounted for 69% of the Titans' total of 585 in two postseason games. What he's on pace to do so far is, is surpass Rams' former running back, Eric Dickerson. Eric Dickerson, if you remember, he accounted for 64% of the Rams' offense back then. Then we we talked about Conklin, right? Right now, Conklin's uh, the Titans' starting right tackle. He's been a very integral part of the offensive line. And that offensive line has really, you know, it's paved paved the path for Derrick Henry so far. What's so impressive about Conklin? I mean, he was an all-pro as a rookie in 2016. And get, this season, he's phenomenal when it comes to the pass block win rate at 93%. So he's ranked 8th among 65 qualified offensive tackles. That's amazing. You know, Corey Davis, this season, I understand. He has not put up the best stats, but what has been amazing for Corey Davis so far, if you've watched him this playoffs, has actually been his downfield blocking. It's been a huge factor in Derrick Henry's huge runs. I mean, Corey Davis, did we, we didn't really know that he had this kind of trait in his offensive game you know but I think the real year Davis really has shown signs that he can be what the the Titans drafted but he hasn't done it at a consistent rate where we can say okay he's the guy John U. Smith he's like a Corey Davis I mean he's been a very big contributor when it becomes when it comes to blocking in the run game they've like I said They've been creating these holes, blocking for Derrick Henry. Uh, Jonu Smith actually stepped into the starting role when Delani Walker went down. And guess what? He's been he's been the guy to go to this season. This has been one of Brian Tannehill's actually favorite receivers. Tight end, excuse me. Tight end. Smith is accruing 35 receptions for 439 yards and three touchdowns on the season. Not bad at all. Okay. 
We're going to talk about trade number two. This is what ESPN has deemed the steal. I think most of us have deemed it the steal. So the Titans, I mean, back, what, in 20, yeah, 2019, they gave up the seventh round pick. This was actually used on Chandler Cox, if you remember. And then guess what? They decided to give up a 2024th round pick. So what did the Titans receive from the Dolphins? They received Ryan Tannehill, and they received 2019 sixth-round pick. And they decided to use that on David Long. <coughs> and you're, you're Once again, you're sitting at home going, what the crap is this guy talking about? What does this mean? I mean, what does this mean at all to the Tennessee Titans? Here's what it means. Ryan Tannehill replaced Marcus Mariota, if you don't remember. He replaced Marcus Mariota in Week 7. What Ryan Tannehill has done was he came into the role that Marcus Mariota had been filling, and he did everything you expected the a pro quarterback to do, to know, to accomplish. What he did was he accepted a new role as a starting quarterback, and he realized that, guess what? You know what? I'm no longer a backup. I've got to come in and play this starting role and do it. When he got his opportunity... He did a phenomenal job. I mean, <clears throat> he looked very professional this year. He looked like the guy the Dolphins selected in 2012. He really did. Meanwhile, Long, he filled, he so far filled in for Jayon Brown. He filled in in week 10 when they when they beat the Chiefs. He, he had the uh, force fumble that resulted in a 53-yard touchdown return. I remember that because that was one of my swing moments of the Chiefs-Titans game. What did Long do again? Jayon Long stepped in when uh, Jayon Brown could not play against the Patriots. So what does he do? He impresses. Then in the Ravens game, he had, in the Ravens game, he had six tackles. Kid's been aggressive. This is... Would we should we deem this Ryan Tannehill's resurgence right now? Yes, but just for the playoffs. His accomplishments <coughs> excuse me. His accomplishments since leaving Miami, where he's um a villain and a and a thief, have been, you know, quite remarkable actually. I mean, so far. Well, something my bad. Something buzzed at me. So far, I mean, he 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 helped Tennessee put up a seven and three record because I mean that remember if you remember Marcus Mariota only had the Titans at two and four. Not good at all. So Tannehill steps in, boom, they go seven and three. Amazing. What else happened? Guess what? The Titans red zone touchdown scoring percentage. They went from 19th to number one in the NFL. I mean, Tennessee has scored touchdowns on each of its five trips to the red zone in the playoffs. Two of those five actually had red zone scores. Came on passes from dun, da, 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 Ryan Tannehill. You know what's so impressive to me is actually the Titans have not attempted a field goal in the last four games. This dude is insane. What's so impressive to me, here's the probably most impressive stat about Ryan Tannehill this year. I mean, Tannehill became the third quarterback since 1991 to finish the regular season with an overall and red zone completion percentage of over 70%. The only other quarterbacks, Drew Brees, 
2018, he was 74.4%. And Steve Young. <coughs> in 1994, Steve Young had a, I believe it was a 70.3%. Yeah, I want to say it's 70.3. <coughs> Titans offense, they finished third in, in, in the NFL in points. They averaged uh, 30.4 per game. And they averaged 406.2 yards per game ever since week seven. Mind you, this is when Ryan Tannehill took over, and this is when the team flipped. It's like with the snap of the fingers, too. He's thrown at least one touchdown in every game, mind you. And that inclu- that's including the postseason. The Titans ha- don't need to ask much more from Ryan Tannehill so far because Derrick Henry's been very dominant. You haven't really had to put much pressure on Ryan Tannehill. But if they want to stamp their ticket to the Super Bowl, the Titans are going to need a lot more from Ryan Tannehill against the Chiefs because Patrick Mahomes runs such a dynamic offense down there in Kansas City. Patrick Mahomes had five touchdown passes in the in the uh, comeback win against the Texans. Down 24-0. to Gets him back. I saw a meme. My dad showed it to me. It was Travis Kelsey and Patrick Mahomes. Travis Kelsey goes, hey, Patrick, let's go down 24-0 and then have a big comeback. I think it will be hilarious. Guess what? It was hilarious. This is when Deshaun Watson, I know Deshaun Watson's good, but he's not elite. He's not there yet. He still needs the experience under the belt. When he gets the experience under the belt, I'm not going to take credit away from him. I mean, he did fight back from a 16-0 deficit against the Buffalo Bills at home. But he's not elite yet. I say yet, because I believe he will be. He's not Patrick Mahomes yet. He, I mean, he's not the Michael Jordan, as Dabu Sweeney called him, of football yet. I believe he can be if he puts that work in. He, if he did what Lamar Jackson did this past offseason and work his tail off, he could be the best quarterback in the league. I mean, he could be right up there with Patrick Mahomes. That's it for me for the first half. Next half, <coughs> second half, we're going to talk Utah Jazz. This came off a 10-game win streak, and we're going to talk about my Angels offseason. Until then, people, stay tuned. Welcome back. Second hour starting now. Hey, let's talk about Utah Jazz. You know, I love my Utah Jazz. For those of you who out, out there who know me personally know that I take the Jazz very seriously. I love them to death. My goodness. Excuse me. I love the Jazz to death. I just, I do. I love them. Here's what, I mean, they're the only professional team here in Utah so I mean, they're pretty. You know, they're they're Utah's like really only hope and joy. I mean, you know, we do have the bees, but they're minor league. We have the Grizzlies, they're minor league. The Raptors, they're minor league. So we don't really have any major teams here. I think that our next, you know, major teams will probably be college wise with the Utes and Cougars. So yeah, that's you know that's what Utah has to offer to you when it comes to uh, pro sports. But my goodness. I can't wait to talk about the Jazz. Here, here's the thing. All right, let's talk Jazz. Ten on a ten game win streak uh, tonight. They are playing 
the New Orleans Pelicans. By the way, this is being filmed January 15th, so just a heads up. So you're not like, well, you know, it's 11 a game Wednesday and I meet the Pelicans. No, this is this is um being filmed on the 15th of 2020, so don't don't worry. Here's the thing for me that you know, we're off 10 game Wednesday. Here's what really stands out to me about the Jazz. There's so many weapons. Many, many weapons. I mean, defenses have to realize that there are very they're just too many players on the court for the Jazz at one time to stop. I mean, here's the thing. You can't stop Donovan Mitchell, period, in isolation. You just can't. I mean, it, it's facts. Next, I mean, you, you can't you, you can't stop Joe Ingles in a pick-and-roll situation. You can't stop Bogdanovich coming off the screen. You can't stop Gobert diving to the rim. There's so many other things that we could talk about that defenses cannot stop. What does this mean, though? I mean, you're sitting there at home thinking... Well, what does this mean? I mean, you just talked about all these ways the Jazz score, and that's the thing. The Jazz score time after time after time. They are scoring machines. Because here's the thing. There is nowhere to put a weak defender. No scheme. No defensive scheme that really works to hide your weak defenders. Look at the Brooklyn game. Where did the Brooklyn Nets stick Kyrie Irving? Stuck him on Royce O'Neal. Kyrie Irving. The Nets are a very good defensive team, if you think about it. Very good defensive team. Torian Prince, DeAndre Jordan, Karis LeVert. Very good defensive team. But Kyrie's their weakest defender in the starting five, and Royce O'Neal is the Jazz's weakest offensive player in the starting five. I believe Royce is a star in the making, just for the record. But these teams don't know where to stick these guys. So what are they going to do? Naturally, they're going to stick James Harden. They're going to stick Devin Booker. They're going to stick Kyrie Irving. They're going to stick these guys on our weakest offensive producers. And in the starting five right now, that's Royce O'Neal. Everyone is just so talented on the court because Royce definitely gets it done offensively as well. So there's no defensive scheme that a team can plan up, master plan up, and then put on the Jazz because we just we know how to work around it for some reason. Here's the thing, though. I mean, I think most Jazz fans were worried. I know I was. You were when it came to the month of, month of November for the Jazz because it was a very ugly stretch for us. They had two main issues during the month of November. The number one was there was a very big lack of cohesion there because if you look at the kind of offensive schemes they ran, it was a scheme that was a my turn, your turn kind of offense. So I take a shot, then you will take a shot, and then you will take a shot, and then you will take a shot, and then it will come back to me, then it will come back to you, and then you, and then you. That is what the offensive scheme was like for the Jazz in the month of November, and it just wasn't working, period, because that's what we would mark as a turnover-prone offense. The Jazz were averaging so many turnovers in the month of November that, I mean, you couldn't count on two hands. I mean, you, you wish you had a third hand just to count those turnovers. Now they're getting better. They're realizing that, hey, man, if you have an open shot, 
don't be afraid to take it. All right. Even if you're lightly contested, if you have a lightly contested shot, don't be afraid to shoot it because we need these baskets. Second thing, the bench. The bench really sabotaged any progress that the starters made. I mean, clearly these issues have been fixed. Dennis Lindsay came in and he stomped his foot down and said, all right, I got to fix this. So what does he do? He acquires Jordan Clarkson and waves Jeff Green. One of the most underrated moves so far this season. Because look at it. Jazz are 10-0 since acquiring Jordan Clarkson. Jeff Green was not getting the job done offensively and defensively. We all loved Uncle Jeff, right? I think we most of us Jazz fans enjoyed Jeff Green, but not when he was playing. We enjoyed his off-court presence more than his on-court presence. And that's not what you need in a player. You need a way to do it on the court and off the court. It's just simple facts. For those of you who watched the Brooklyn game, let's talk about the Brooklyn game like I was just earlier. Didn't you notice how Brooklyn just could not find a way to stop them? I mean, it was very it's very simple. Brooklyn had no answer for the Jazz. The Jazz were just too far ahead of them offensively and defensively. So the Nets, when you look at the Brooklyn Nets, they have a long way to go right now to catch a team like that. Kyrie Irving recently made the comments that the Nets are one to two pieces away from being that kind of team that can stick with a team like the Jazz. Now, I don't you know really feel very good about him going out to the public and stating this and you know getting all this hoopla surrounding him because of it. I don't think that's very good, but you know what? Maybe he's right that the Nets are one to two pieces away. I believe they're one to two pieces away from sticking with a team like the Jazz. But we also have to take into effect Kevin Durant is hurt. And when Kevin Durant comes back, I mean, that's going to be a different Brooklyn team. They're no longer going to be an 18 and 21 Brooklyn team. They're going to be, you know, they're going to be insane and a team that is considered unstoppable because Kyrie, one of the best point guards in the league, Kevin Durant, possibly the best player in the league. So, geez, this is going to be a good team in the future. But here's the thing for the Jazz. Let's get back to the Jazz now. The Jazz need to realize right now that there are going to be harder stretches for them. The Jazz are going to play tougher opponents in the month of February. They need to realize that right now in the month of January. Within this time period, we can, we'll can call it, I mean, Mike Conley, he's going to come back. Um, and here's here's my honest opinion. It is going to take Mike Conley a couple of games to find his stride with the Jazz. So far, he has not really found a groove with the team themselves, which which really stinks, right? We thought we were getting Memphis Mike. So far, we have not gotten Memphis Mike, but we want to get Mike Conley to that point. Okay? Here's another thing. Within this month span... Somebody's going to get hurt, okay? I mean, it just happens. I mean, players are playing hurt right now, and we don't even know. But yes, there there's going to be there's going to be an injury or two. So what what are you going to do? How are you how are you going to back that up? Now, and at another point in time, players going to come out, and he's going to have shooting slumps. What you know? How are you going to counter that? What are you going to do 
This is where Quinn Snyder becomes one of the best basketball coaches I've ever witnessed. I call him a mad scientist. He looks like a mad scientist on that side of the court when he's pacing up and down, when he's sitting there, you know, revising the game plan. This man is a madman. I love the guy to death. He's an absolute maniac, but holy crap, dude. Does he not look like one of those mad scientists, you know, holding the vials full of chemicals? <laughs> if I mix my neurophonic thing with my 2HOP2, we're going to make a big explosion. Like, that's how I envision Quinn Snyder. Like, you like my, um, my scientist... What do you, what would you call it? That my scientist rendition. It was a pretty awful. I'll I'll be I'll be the first to say that. Next for me regarding the Jazz, Donovan Mitchell's had a big bounce back. Look, let's talk about the Nets game again. Donovan Mitchell, really struggling, man. Forty two minutes had a rough game. I would, man. I mean, he had eleven points on three of thirteen shooting, had three turnovers. But here's the thing about Donovan. When you analyze the Brooklyn game, you notice that he was trying to force things, okay, and, and and especially in the paint. Look at the instance where he misses his signature dunk. He rim-stuffed himself. I mean, holy crap, that's got to hurt your back. But he he just, he was forcing everything, and you don't want that from Donovan. I don't like it personally. When Donovan starts to force things, that's when he starts missing shots. This is when his assist numbers go away. I know his assist numbers aren't very high right now, but still, no no passing. And this is when the team chemistry starts to dissolve a little. A little. And this is what we saw at the beginning of the season. This is what we saw in the month of November. And this is where we got worried, when shots were forced, especially by Mitchell, because I think he feels the weight of the world to win this game for the Jazz. So what does he do? He starts forcing shots. You don't want that. But here's the positive. I mean, Mitchell finished the game by making five of his last six shots. Very good. Remember the first shot? What was it? Pull up three. Let's imagine this play in your mind. So beautiful. You got Donovan Mitchell. What is so? Here's the play. Kyrie Irving. He's He went under in pick and roll. Mitchell saw that Kyrie was going under. So what does he do? He pulls up. Nail a dagger. Put a dagger in his heart. That's what he did. Second shot. He saw Torian Prince. Torian Prince, if you remember, was leaning on the screen. So he rejected it. Got the step. Got all the way to the rim. Layup. Another two points. Yeah, there's five points right there. So what did the Brooklyn Nets decide to do on defense? They decide, okay, we got to switch. So boom, Nets started to switch. What does Mitchell do? Mitchell has one of the best basketball minds. This is where I love him. Mitchell recognizes that the Nets are starting to switch. So what does he do? He attacks right at the moment of indecision. Boom, another layup. What do they do? Nets again. They switch. He sees this. This is his final basket of the night, mind you. He sees that they switch again. So in the moment of indecision, he doesn't go right. He goes left. Boom, gets to the rim again, another two points. This is amazing. Within this six-minute time span, Mitchell kept it simple. I mean, he had, like I said, very smart basketball mind. He read what the defense was doing. 
So what did he do when he was reading, reading the defense? He attacked them at their most vulnerable point. Attacked them. Boom. Layup. Boom. Three. Boom. Another layup. Boom. I'm going left. Boom. I'm going right. This is where he is one of the smartest basketball players I've ever watched too. Because Donovan Mitchell is focused on being efficient. Donovan Mitchell wants to be a good decision maker. When Donovan Mitchell decides to be efficient, decides to be a good decision maker, this is when Donovan Mitchell is one of the best offensive players in the NBA. In the fourth quarter in the Brooklyn game, this is probably the best we've seen Mitchell so far in his NBA career. This is what we want Mitchell to be at all the time. Not just in the fourth quarter. We want Mitchell to be like this all game. Okay? Third thing for me. Will Joe Ingles ever score over 27 points? My goodness. This is That was Joe Ingles' sixth time in his career scoring 27 points. <laughs> and my 27 points is his career high, mind you. So, we, you know, as a funny ha-ha, we can pose the question of, man, is Joe Ingles ever going to hit 28 points? Is he ever going to hit 29 points? People, we don't know. We don't really know. Now, I'm just messing with you, of course, because I love Joe. I love Joe. Because here's the thing. Joe's 32 years old, people. But guess what? He keeps improving. He's at the age in the NBA specifically where people are starting to turn from star players to floor generals. Joe, guess what? He decided, nah, I'm not going to do that. So he does the opposite. He starts becoming more of a star player from before when he was just a role player. He's becoming one of the biggest factors in the Jazz's offense, and I love it. And when he's the biggest factor is when he's starting himself, when he's starting the plays himself. It's amazing. In the Brooklyn game, only three of his baskets were assisted. I mean, one of those was pretty dubious, to be honest. I mean, O'Neal passes the ball to Ingles from behind the half-court line, and so does Ingles do. Just walks the ball up the court, takes a three, bang, dagger. This is where, I mean, I love Joe. Jingling Joe, as I'll call him. So what are you you're talking about? Hey, man, what about the other seven baskets? Because Joe Ingles was 10 for 14 on the night, if you remember. Those other seven baskets were unassisted. And they were unassisted because... These were plays he created himself, specifically pick and rolls. Now, you know, I know that players are going to have good shooting nights. Players are going to have bad shooting nights. Players are going to have mediocre shooting nights. But Joe Ingles is making this stuff look easy, people. Ingles is making offensive playmaking look simple. I mean, Ingles... If you remember Ingles from when he first came to the Jazz, even even last year, this year, beginning of the season, I mean, Joe Ingles was afraid in the mid range. He didn't. He had no mid range shot. He was absolutely afraid of it. I mean, it was his poison. So it no longer is right now. He's making floaters now. Like we're sitting there at home going, "What the crap? Joe has never done this kind of stuff." Here's the thing, though. Here's the most impressive thing about Joe this season so far. Let's think back to last year. Jazz and the Houston and the NBA playoffs. Houston knows what Joe's weak side is. Joe's weak side last year 
right side. What do they do? They exclusively force him to the right side because they know, hey, if we can get this guy going to the right, he's going to miss the shot. So what does Joe do? He realizes that after the playoffs, he goes, crap, they beat me there. So I'm going to practice that for the next six months. And guess what? He turns it into one of the Jazz's most reliable weapons, people. Because the Jazz are averaging between 1.1 and 1.3 points per possession on Ingles going right off screens. And not not on the mid-range stuff, the three ball. Heck yes, baby. Guess what? It's not supposed to be that easy. It's not. I mean, you're not supposed to be able to just decide that you need to take your weakness as a player and turn it into one of your biggest strengths. It just doesn't happen most of the time, people. Works on it for six months. Like I said, Joe put the biggest work into it. And guess what? He he must have prayed to the same fairy godmother Cinderella did because his wish came true. You're not supposed to do that at 32 years old. Like, holy crap. I don't I don't see any older players in the NBA doing that. Kudos to Joe, man. This is why Joe is one of my favorite players. Because Joe's story breaks every rule in the in the unwritten book. If you if I were to sit down, I said, guys, I'm gonna write a book about Joe Angles, and it came out, and you bought it at the local Barnes and Nobles. You read it at home, you finished it, you threw it to the side and said, crap, this is all, this is all dumb. I don't believe this crap. Because guess what? None of it is going to make sense. It's just going to be all jargon. You're going to be like, okay, this guy was 32 years old, couldn't go right in the playoffs against Houston, and in 2019-2020 NBA season, that's one of his biggest strengths. They're averaging 1.3 to 1.1 to 1.3 possessions because of that. When Joe Ingles coming off the screen and shooting the three ball, you got to be kidding me, people. You know, you know what a a book critic would probably call my book. You know, obviously the title is going to be Joe Ingles, the man, the myth, the legend, the man who could do it all at 32 years old. You know what a book critic would probably, you know, put under the book? Yeah, because, you know, I'm obviously going to have a book review quote underneath it. The book review critic would say, truth is stranger than, truth is stranger than fiction, you guys. Truth is stranger than fiction. It'd be, uh, you know... New York Times bestseller, obviously, because it's about Joe Ingles. Um, you know, he's just one of those perfect human beings, caring for twins, plays for his country in the World Cup. I mean, this guy just does it all, dude. What, 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 what can't Joe Ingles do? This is so impressive. I told you. There we go. There's my jazz talk for the day with you guys. I always love talking jazz. They mean so much to me. Love them a lot. But here's another team that means a lot to me. The Angels. That was my like angel sound. I mean, imagine an angel coming down from heaven. They would probably make that noise, right? You know, imagine the heavens opening up and all of a sudden you hearing. I think it would happen. But the angels, people, off season. My gosh, I'm not happy. I'm not too happy, people, because here's the thing. Our best pitching signing, in my opinion, in the offseason was Julio Tehran. It sucks. Julio Tehran. I used to really like Julio Tehran. I'm not going to lie. When he was with the Braves, I thought he had some good stuff. Here's the only really big positive about him. I mean, last year, 
10 and 11, 3.81 ERA, pitching 33 games. I like that. The record could use work. The ERA could use a little bit of work. But I think he's going to prove to be the best pitcher that we picked up in the offseason because Matt and Drees, ERA over four, not too great of a record. Dylan Bundy, seven and 14 record over four ERA. I don't like Dylan Bundy. I don't. I don't care what you people tell me. I am an Angels fan, but it's hard. It's hard when the Angels sign guys like this. I love the Rendon deal. Do not get me wrong, but you know, could we have pursued a guy like Madison Bumgarner? Could we? Realistically, could the Angels have chased a guy like him? Probably. We could have offered the money there. The money could have been there for a mad bum. The money was obviously there for Garrett Cole, but I mean, he took the just the bigger, fatter deal. You know, Strasburg loved Washington. Going to go back, that makes a lot of sense. But could we gone after a Madison Bumgarner? I mean, could we push for a trade? Yeah. The most realistic thing for the Angels right now when it comes down to pitching is tr- training infield talent, uh, whether that be Andrelton Simmons or David Fletcher. I mean, that's the reality for us teams. You know, because I've heard where we, you know, we've been in trade talks for Mike Clevenger, you know, somebody like that, a quality pitcher that you can depend on every fifth day to go out there and get you a win or put it, leave it all out there on the mound. I mean, these, these guys, these teams are going to be asking for a guy like David Fletcher, a guy like Andrelton Timmons, and they're not going to settle for less. And this is the reality. I believe this is the reality. The Angels, it's coming down to this. If you want to contend in the AL West, we can probably realistically end up in second place because the te- Texas Rangers are not a you know, great team. Seattle, not a good team. Oakland, okay. I mean, Oakland could probably finish third in the AL West. They could even finish second. I don't know. We forget Houston. Houston is, you know, it depends on what punishments go on. If they do inflict player punishments, we could see guys like Altuve, Springer, Correa not play. Possibly. But the Astros are still going to be a very good team. They still have a very good pitching staff. Lance McCullers Jr. coming back this year. You still have Zach Rienke. You still have reigning AL Cy Young Award winner Justin Verlander coming back. This is going to be a good team. You guys forget that. Do not forget that the Astros will still be a good team even though they lost Garrett Cole. Still will be a good team. But we need to compete hard. The Realistically, when it comes to the playoffs this year, probably a wild card for the Angels at, at best. I hope and pray we make the playoffs this year. I am praying. I want them to make the playoffs. Last time we were in the postseason was in 2014, and we got swept by the Kansas City Royals. Fun fact, I actually have a Colin Calgill game-used jersey from the 2014 postseason. It is flipping sweet. Go Angels. But that was the last time we were in the playoffs. Mike Trout still does not have a playoff win. It's very, very disappointing. Best player in baseball, no playoff wins. Has made it to one playoff in his whole career. But if we want to compete, man, we might have to trade a David Fletcher. We might have to trade Hamilton Simmons. As bad as it sucks, it's true. 
you know, I hate saying that. I hate uttering those words. We might have to trade Simmons. We might have to trade Fletcher. But that's the reality of the situation right now for the Anaheim Angels. Uh, every Angel fan wants to see them contend. We got a great new manager in Joe Madden. We got a brand new third baseman. This lineup is going to be solid. I mean, Fletcher hitting that leadoff, Trout, Otani, Rendon, Pujols. After Pujols, I'm probably going to hit right fielder Goodwin. If they call him Joe Adele, you could even have Joe Adele there. Who knows? You know, you got Jason Castro. You have Andrelton Simmons. You have Jay up there. I mean, this is this is a good team offensively. We have one of the best lineups in the league. This lineup can compete with pretty much any other team's lineup in the league. But when it comes to the pitching staff, ours cannot compete. We're at, we're in the lower bracket. We don't want to be in the lower bracket. We want to be in the top bracket now. We want to get these playoff wins. Go do the things you need to do to get quality pitching, Billy Epler and Artie. Go get them. As I'm, I'm pleading with you from the bottom of my heart as a, as a very dear Angels fan. Go get them. Go get them, Tiger. But let's do it. Folks, that all, that's all I have for you today. I hope you enjoyed Hope you enjoyed talking jazz with me, talking talking football, talking basketball, talking baseball. I always have so fun doing this. You know, thank you guys once again making me part of your day. So grateful. Hope you all have a great day. And until then, guys, peace.